Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. The podcast where we, Jennifer and... Kalia. Two book nerds talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Two warnings. This podcast uses barnyard language. Why limit ourselves to only nice words? Some things warrant not-so-nice words. Also, spoiler warning, we will be talking about the endings of both book and movie, so prepare yourself. Okay. Let's get into it. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Special guest. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Special guest. gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Pages and Popcorn Podcast. Today, joining me is Chris Jarvis, who you might remember from our episode about Love, Simon, last year's Pride episode, or our episode about And the Band Played On. And now that I've mentioned them, I will, of course, link to them in our show notes. Where do those show notes live? Why, they live on our website, which is kmmamedia.com slash Pages and Popcorn Podcast. And all of that will be in the show notes as well. Also on that website are places where you can support this podcast. Become a patron. Buy me a cup of coffee. Like and review us. Share us on social media. Follow us on social media. Email me at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. So many ways to get involved, including our newest and favorite way right now, which is our monthly pop-in events, the final Monday of every month. Come and hang out with me and Jennifer on Zoom. It is Pride Month. I know that Jennifer and I are going to be doing something a little special for Pride Month. So again, the final Monday of the month, 7 o'clock Pacific time on Zoom. The links are on our social media, so check it out. Join us. And now, it was a very quick intro, on with the show. <laughs> Here we are today. Hi, Chris. Welcome back to the show. Hi, Kaylee. Lovely to be here. <laughs> okay, so I am going to do a book recap and a movie recap, and then we are going to discuss Brokeback Mountain. Also, happy pride. Yay. Okay, Brokeback Mountain is a short story by American author Annie Prue. That, that is how we say it, right? I looked it up. P-R-O-U-L. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. So proof. Annie Prue. It was originally published in the New Yorker on October 13th, 1997. It won some awards. It was a big deal. And eventually an expanded version of it was published in Annie's 1999 collection of short stories. And because it was published in the New Yorker, you can read it for free. That link of where you can read it for free instead of buying the little teeny tiny book is going to be in our show notes on our website. So check it out. Here is the book recap. Except for a quick prologue double paragraph at the present tense, the story leaps backwards in times and starts in the spring of 1963 as Enos and Jack first meet in the trailer office of Wyoming's farm and ranch employment. Jack and Enos are teenagers born and bred in opposite corners of Wyoming on poor ranches. Both are well acquainted with the life of hard work and rough living and both are high school dropouts. Enos lost both parents when he was young and grew up in the care of two older siblings. At age 14, he received a hardship grant for a truck to drive to school, but the truck soon broke down and he went to work on a ranch. Now he's engaged to Alma. 
Jack and Nina sign on to become sheep herder and camp tender, respectively, for the foreman, Joe, whose livestock will spend the summer on Brokeback Mountain. Jack has done this once before, but Enos is new to the job. Joe instructs the herder to sleep with the sheep in a pup tent, armed but without a fire, to prevent coyotes from killing the animals. This is against Forest Service regulations. Jack and Enos drink and talk in a bar, then they head up the mountain and get to work. After Jack complains about the four-hour commute to go to the herd, the men switch roles. Enos heads up to the mountain while Jack prepares meals in the camp. When they're together, they talk, drink whiskey, and become friends. The men move the sheep to graze on a further field, increasing the distance between pasture and base camp. One cold night, after much talking and drinking, Enos decides to remain in base camp rather than trek back to the herd. It's freezing, and Jack tells him to join him in the sleeping roll inside the warm tent. In the tent, Jack reaches for Enos's hand and pulls it to his groin, only to be roughly turned and entered from behind by Enos, the first time Enos has been with a man. The sex happens many times after that, but they both deny their homosexuality. During a surprise visit to the campsite, Joe sees the men together through his binoculars. In August, the sheep get mixed up with a Chilean herd, and Enos and the Chilean herder struggle to separate them. In late August, Joe calls the men and sheep down from the mountain and frowns as he pays Jack and Enos, knowing that some of the sheep aren't his. The two men say goodbye, each evasive about his plans for the next summer. Jack has a bruised jaw. Enos has punched him the day before. They part ways as though they don't care. Once Jack is out of sight, Enos has to pull over because he is sick with grief. Enos marries Alma and has two girls, getting work as a wrangler and on a highway crew to support his family. Alma wants to live in town, but Enos likes the impermanence of their remote apartment. Four years pass. Jack sends Enos a postcard saying he's coming to town, and Enos replies with his address. When Jack arrives, Enos runs to greet him, and there is a pretty epic makeout session. Alma steps outside, sees him kissing in front of their apartment, and then quickly goes back inside. She comes out again when the men have separated, and Enos introduces her to Jack. The men tell each other about their children that they have. Jack has married a Texan girl, Loring. The men go to a motel where they have sex all night. The next day, they reminisce about their time in Brokeback and talk about their feelings. Enos says he hasn't slept with other men, and Jack lies and says he hasn't either. Jack tells Enos he thinks Joe knew what happened in the mountain. He tells Enos that he was surprised by the punch on the last day, and Enos says his brother used to punch him and that he finally punched his brother one day, taking him by surprise. Jack suggests that they set up a ranch together, but Enos tells Jack about the time his father took him as a child to see the mutilated body of a gay rancher. He says they just have to endure the separation. The two men continue to see each other occasionally, but they never return to Brokeback. A rift grows between Alma and Enos, and she divorces him when their daughters are nine and seven. She remarries. At a Thanksgiving dinner, she confronts Enos about his affair with Jack, and he storms out. During one trip, Enos tells Jack he won't be able to see him until November, although they'd planned to meet in August. While Jack has his wife's money and her inherited business to fall back on, Enos lives paycheck to paycheck and can't miss work. Jack admits that he travels to Mexico for sex because Enos can't give him enough of a life. They argue, but nothing is resolved. Jack remembers a time on Brokeback when Enos simply embraced him and stood with him by the fire. Months later, a postcard Enos has mailed to Jack has returned to him stamped deceased. Enos calls Laureen and she says that Jack had an accident. He was changing a tire and it blew up, sending the rim into his face. Enos thinks it was no accident and that men killed him with a tire iron. Lorraine says that Jack wanted to have his ashes interred in a place called Brokeback Mountain, but she didn't know where it was, so she buried half the ashes and gave the rest to his parents. Enos decides to visit Jack's family in Lightning Flat, Wyoming. Enos is met by Jack's mother and his disapproving father in their tiny, depressing ranch home. 
Mr. Jack's dad says Jack had long spoken of coming home to Lightning Flat with Enos to help run the ranch, but he had been recently talking about bringing home another young man, a Texan, instead. His mother invites Enos to see Jack's room. In the closet, Enos discovers an old shirt of Jack's stained with Enos's blood layered over a shirt of Enos's from their brokeback days. Jack's father says he's putting his son's ashes in the family plot. So Enos buys a postcard of Brokeback, tacks it to his trailer wall, hangs the two shirts beneath it. Jack begins to appear in Enos's dreams, and Enos continues to live with his sadness and his memories. The end. M. Brokeback Mountain is a 2005 American neo-Western romantic drama film directed by Ang Lee, starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Heath Ledger. Also, Anne Hathaway and Michelle Williams and a whole bunch of other people. <clears throat> in Wyoming, 1963, cowboys Enos and Jack are hired by Joe to herd the sheep through the summer and grazing pastures in Brokeback Mountain. Enos hardly talks. And Jack talks a lot. And they form an uneasy friendship. Jack hates sleeping out with the sheep and Enos trades some jobs. Then there's a night of drinking and cold weather and the two men end up sharing a tent and Jack takes Enos's hand and Enos takes Jack and it's all very fumbly and grunty and the next day Enos doesn't want to talk about it and he's dismayed to see that a sheep has been killed in the night while he was away from his guard post. Enos tells Jack that it was a one-time incident but the next night there is some shirtless cuddling and soon they develop a passionate sexual and emotional relationship. Joe knows about them playing around up in the mountains and the job ends early. The two cowboys part ways. After they say goodbye, totally acting like they don't care, Enos breaks down crying and retching, but Jack is gone. Enos marries Alma and quickly has two daughters with her. Jack returns the next summer seeking work, but Joe refuses to hire him again and makes it clear that he knows what kind of cowboy Jack is. Jack moves to Texas, where he meets rodeo writer Laureen. They marry and have a son. Her father hates Jack and treats him like crap. Enos moves his family to town and has a bit of a temper. After four years apart, Jack visits Enos. Upon meeting, the two passionately kiss while a stunned Alma inadvertently witnesses. Then they go out drinking, aka fucking, in a hotel room all night long. During a post-coital cuddle, Jack broaches the subject of creating a life with Enos on a ranch, but Enos refuses. He's unwilling to abandon his family and is haunted by a childhood memory of his father showing him the body of a man who was tortured and killed for suspected homosexuality. Years pass. Enos and Jack meet infrequently for fishing trips while their respective marriages deteriorate. Lorraine abandons the rodeo going into business with her father, which in turn causes Jack to work in sales. They have a corporate marriage, but Jack seems to really love his son. He eventually even stands up to his asshole of a father-in-law and he gets some respect. Things are not so good for Alma and Enos. He has a temper. She knows about his lack of fishing on the fishing trips and hates that he chooses to stay in dead-end jobs. They divorce. Upon hearing about the divorce, Jack drives all night over to Wyoming and tells Enos that now they can live together, but Enos refuses to move away from his children. Upset, Jack finds solace with a male prostitute in Mexico. Alma eventually remarries and then confronts Enos about the true nature of his relationship with Jack. They fight and Enos is violent towards her and then ceases contact. Enos goes on to have a short-lived romantic relationship with a very cute waitress named Cassie. Jack and Laureen befriend another couple, Randall and LaShawn Malone, and it's heavily implied that Jack and Randall have a brief affair. At the end of a fishing trip, Enos tells Jack that he cannot take any more time off from work this year and he won't be able to meet him until later in the year, like November. The pair have an argument in which they blame each other for their not being together. And Jack admits to his affairs because he's lonely and sad. And Enos can't commit to him, but can't be okay with that new knowledge either. Eventually, Enos begins to cry and Jack embraces him, but they still sort of break up and Enos leaves and their argument seems to not be quite finished. 
Sometimes later, Enos receives a postcard that he has sent to Jack stamped with deceased. He calls Lorraine, who says that Jack died in an accident after a car tire exploded in his face, though Enos visualizes Jack's death as a violent murder reminiscent of the murder of the gay rancher from his childhood. After Lorraine tells him that Jack wanted to have his ashes scattered at Brokeback Mountain, Enos meets with Jack's parents in hopes of carrying out the request. Jack's father refuses, preferring to have the ashes interred in the family plot. He also says that Jack talked about Enos coming to live there and then another guy coming, but no one ever came. Jack's mom, though, seems to know what's up, and Enos goes to Jack's bedroom where he finds his own shirt in the closet. Jack had kept it, hanging it with his shirt stained with blood from the fight they had in the summer of 1963. Enos holds the shirts to his face and hails deeply and silently weeps. Jack's mother gives Enos the shirts. Later, Enos's now 19-year-old daughter, Alma Jr., arrives at his trailer to tell him that she's engaged. She invites him to the wedding, to which he eventually agrees. Once Alma Jr. leaves, Enos goes to the closet where his and Jack's shirts still hang together with a postcard of Brokeback Mountain tacked above them. As Enos said earlier, if you can't fix it, you have to bear it. He closes the door, and that's the end. <sighs> so. So let me, just, let me just throw this out there. Yeah. I think it's interesting that you're calling him Enos, as in penis, when his name is Ennis. So I just want to say that's the gayest male thing I've ever heard you do. Because even I wouldn't have thought of that. And it's obvious. <laughs> and I love when you said, when you, <laughs> when you were talking about when they did it in the tent and you said, Enos gave it to him or whatever you said. I'm like, yeah, is Enos. Oh, it was just perfect. So what you're saying is I'm going to have to re-record all that and saying Ennis. Well, that's of- why I, sh- I wanted to interrupt you at first, but. That it was just too good. Let her just say the whole thing. It was. It was too good. I didn't want to say anything. Ennis. Well, that's what they say in the movie. I mean, that's how it's pronounced. And I'm thinking Ennis like Dennis, but in my head, it's always been Ennis. You're thinking penis is what you're thinking. I know exactly what you're fucking thinking. That is is what I think about. (laughs) I say you leave it in and just leave in this part that we're talking about. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see. All right. So um, this short story came out in 1997 and got a fair bit of attention, but um, kind of the attention that it got was literary circles and, and you know, it, there was no social media, 1997. So I'm wondering, did you know about the story? Was the story on your radar or, or not until the movie? You know, that's, that's hard to say. I don't know if the story was on my radar or not. I would guess that it probably was, although it doesn't ring a bell for me. So the reason this was kind of hard well not hard for me but interesting was because i saw the movie first like i think most people did and i would guess most people have not read this so when i'm reading the short story the movie is playing in my mind because uh, the short story is in many places word for word what the movie was it's almost like i was telling james tonight it's almost like the cliff notes of the movie it's like the <laughs> the, the movie which i i can't say enough about the movie. I mean, when I first saw the movie, we went with a bunch of LGBTQ people from Fresno to see it in the IMAX theater um, in River Park. And it was, I mean, I cried through the whole thing. It was stunning because the cinematography in this movie is unbelievable. But that was, I watched it on the, you know, I've watched it a few times since at home. And I watched it last night to prepare for this. It's not the same thing. It's still beautiful, but to see it on a on, a, on an IMAX screen, it it took my breath away. So I will say the one thing about the book 
that doesn't get that doesn't match the movie is the landscape. Even though it describes the landscape in, in some pretty decent ways, it cannot match just like any landscape can't match the visual interpretation of a landscape, especially on the IMAX screen. So I, I, I know I knew about the story ahead of time, but I hadn't read it. And uh, the movie was my first experience. Did you not read it until prepping for this podcast or had you? Right, exactly. Oh, wow. Okay. So I missed the story completely in 1997, which is fair. I was 16 and dealing with other oh, stuff. Oh, here it comes. Yeah. I'm Every young time I'm old. on the show, here's how young I am, here's how old you are. Okay, yeah, go yeah. ahead. But when the movie came out, it came out the weekend of my 25th birthday. And so because it was being talked about, you know, I was fascinated by the concept and I knew it was based on a short story. And so I found the story on the New Yorker. And I remember sitting in my office at the time I closed the door and I folded up on my screen. I was supposed to be working, but I wasn't. And I read this story in my office and cried and then like had to pretend like I was like totally normal. And then was a little scared to go see it in the movie theater because I was like, oh my gosh, it's so emotional. And at were the you still in San Jose at that point? Yes. Okay. Uh, and married and not fully out to everybody. Right. And right. like, didn't know how to kind of deal with that. Um, so I didn't want to appear to be super into this, even though I was obviously like super into this. Uh, it, okay. So anyways, I didn't actually get to see it in the theater. I saw it forever later like on dvd but it was like at a there was like a, it was like at a party there was like stuff going on i think somebody at a party like, really they, somebody put it on and i caught like bits and pieces so between bits and pieces and seeing all of the parodies because there were so many parodies right, right. and over the course of the years i've read the story multiple times and i had not actually had not actually watched this movie from start to finish until preparing for this podcast. So, oh, wow, really? Yeah. I mean, I felt like so I'd tell seen... me your impression that way. Oh, my God. Just well, so first of all, I will tell you that I, I put it on and I well, first I asked my my husband, Matthew, I said, I'm going to watch it. Do you have any interest? And he's like, eh, if you want me to watch it with you, I will. But, you know, I know you've got your schedule and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, OK, well, I, I want to watch it and give myself plenty of time. So I'm going to watch it. And he was walking through and he kept stopping and going, oh my gosh, that, that it's so pretty because it was at the very beginning, right? All of the really right. pretty stuff. And I was like, yeah. And then he walked in during, I don't even remember. It was like, well, a scene where the guys were just talking and he kind of just like slowed down as he was. And I was like, you know what? Let me just turn this off and we can watch it together. So we watched it together and we were both just freaking blown away. And I, he, he has lots of thoughts. He really enjoyed it. <laughs> and, oh, good, cool. And so did I. So yeah, this was. This I was think it, I think it's a brilliant movie. I mean, I can't say enough about the film. Like I said, I just read the short story preparing for the podcast, but I, and I think the short story is good too. It, like I said, it's difficult because it's so much like the movie, but it's so condensed compared to the movie, which of yeah. course it would be. Although some books are more expansive than movies, but this one is so condensed. It's 50, what's 58 pages, 50. Mine is 55. So yeah, I, yeah, 55. 
But okay, so here's the thing. One of the problems that we run into a lot when you adapt a novel into a film is that a novel takes place over a significant amount of time and there's a lot of details in character development and it's hard to smush that into a film. So right. this is really fascinating because this story is a short story, economy of words, 20 years worth of actual stuff. And the movie goes, you know, gets to flesh it out. And I thought what they added in worked really well. It was like along the same lines and with the same intent and the same feelings of the, of the short story. So it felt appropriate what they were. Cause I remember as I was remembering, I was like, I know I've seen bits and pieces and there's like stuff with the wife and the daughters. And there's this other stuff with like the other, you know, this and that. And I was like, oh gosh, is it just going to feel padded, you know, but I can say this is no Hobbit where they've taken a, you know, a novel and made it into three movies for no reason. This, this really worked as an adaptation. I feel like it was very true to the intent. I was thinking the same thing um, because I've never read anything. Like I said, the movie first and now the book, the story, I've never read anything so brief that matched the movie so closely. And yet the movie was able to, I was talking to James about this earlier. How did they take this 55 page story and adapt it into this two hour movie? And when you watch the movie, you can see, because of course they do a lot of long takes on the landscape and long takes on dialogue and long takes on this, but it's totally true to the story. I mean, completely true to the story. Of course, I've I, like I said, I've read it multiple times. This is a, is to me what a short story should be. It's got tight writing. It's got the perfect amount of exposition. It's like kind of the perfect length, and I think it makes the point about fears and risks and I, you know, the star-crossed lovers and living through pain and loss and all of that stuff. The themes are very universal. And I actually read a review, it was actually a review about the movie, but it was talking about how when you get really specific about in stories, they become actually counterintuitively more universal. And I just, you know, I'm not a gay cowboy and I didn't live through the 60s, but there are things here that can resonate with me even though I'm not a gay cowboy in the 60s and the 70s. So I just, I really, really, really loved it. Yes. Well, let me say I was a gay cowboy in the 60s, but <laughs> I had a toy cowboy hat and uh, I had dish towels. I'll have to send you this picture. Dish towels around my neck to be a cape because somehow I thought a cowboy should have a cape. And I had my little uh, holsters and my little toy gun. So I was a gay cowboy in the 60s. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Not this kind of gay cowboy or I would have been much happier. But <laughs> um, I really, really liked the movie. I think the acting was superb. Heath Ledger <laughs> just embodies. Okay, so here's a little bit of a change because in the in the in the story, Ennis does talk. He's not quite as taciturn as as Heath Ledger's Ennis is in the movie. Right. And right. not only does Heath Ledger Ledger not talk very much, but he doesn't even open his mouth to talk. Right. You know, true. it's it's That's like true. these words are being pulled from him and when you start to see the evolution of their friendship one of like this key moment that they added in was at one point when he's opening up to jack and he's like my parents and this and blah da 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 and jack's like oh my god that's the most words you've said in a week and he's like well that's probably the most words i've said in a year you know it's this it's funny every time he talks he says something either worth hearing or funny but he's very right. careful with his words and i just 
I really, and just Heath Ledger's physicality, the way he picks up his daughters and the way he moves and the way he looks at horses and just like everything about it is just freaking amazing. He's so like, let, let me say something about that. So as a, as a person, I won't say much older than you, but I'll say older than you. <laughs> I was born in 1961. So I'm not as old as the characters in this book, but I'm in the same ballpark. When you talk about the physicality of Heath Ledger and the lack of uh, words by Heath Ledger, I think what a lot of people don't understand or and, and they can't uh, in this day and age is that in those days, you didn't even talk about being gay. It wasn't even a conversation that could be had. For instance, in the book and the movie, when they talk about when when Jack is talking to Ennis about you know, let's just get a ranch. Let's just get a house. Let's, let's move in together. Let's do this. And it's interesting in the book, at one point, Heath Ledger's character, Ennis says, that might be a good idea. Uh, that never happens in the movie. In the movie, he's instantly dismissive of that. And then he goes on to be dismissive of it in the book by saying what is exactly the truth, which is that will never wash in this, he didn't say in this day and age, but in his time, that would never wash. You could never be two guys living together on a ranch or appearing to be non-heterosexuals because you risk death, you risk um, abuse, you risk discrimination, you risk this. That is so true to the time period. As someone who was born in 1961, I couldn't even, I came out in 1982 uh, when I was 20, 21. It wasn't even possible before that. I mean, did, people did come out, but it wasn't even possible to have the conversation about these things. So the tension that Heath Ledger displays in this movie by being reticent about talking and reticent about his movements, everything in his physicality and his words is directly related to the fact that he was a gay man in the 60s and early 70s when you weren't allowed to be that. Which I find very interesting because so the screenplay was written by larry mcmurray who i mean basically was a, a american novelist who wrote about old west stuff lonesome right, dove right, right? lonesome right. dove and like all of that stuff and he had cowboys who lived with other cowboys but they one was you know still pining the loss of one love and the other guy had his whole thing was that he was a womanizer, but they were like this platonic male duo and maybe they were together. Maybe they they weren't there. There's definitely readings of some of those books that say that they kind of on the down low, but there was also a shortage of women. So they, they could live together with, and as long as they were regularly going into town and, you know, having sex with the ladies or whatever, like people kind of left them alone because of, again, there's just not a lot of women. So it's built into the society that this might happen. Whereas you right. get into the sixties and now they're, well, of course, why would you do this unless, and so kind of like the changing and nowadays, I mean, you know, it's what 40, 50 years later, we've got platonic best friends getting married. <laughs> so like yeah, we've kind yeah. of come back around now, now there's like not very many men, <laughs> <laughs> there's 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 um, an overabundance of women in their 30s and 40s and 50s who are single who might actually be straight but just want to have a companionship and hey it's nice to have a wife because you know gender role someone needs right, to be the, the laundry the, the main difference is in the 60s and early 70s and i say early 70s because gay rights started to come into into vogue so to speak and into um popular um acceptance 
in the late 70s. So in the in the 60s, definitely, and any time before that, in the early 70s up to maybe like 1975. Yes, you're right that people now can can live like this and not be suspect if you if you choose to use that term or you know in, implicated in any relationship that is not what they have. That never was the case in the 60s and the early 70s. If you were a man of a certain age or a woman of a certain age, although again, I will always say that people are accepting of women who are either gay, bisexual or queer, whatever it is, they're accepting of that, but men are a completely different story. They were not accepting of that. So if you enter into any kind of a relationship, even if it's just a roommate situation, let's say two straight guys decide to be roommates in 1969, there was always a point where they got to a certain age where you weren't married and you weren't maybe dating mm -hmm. that people started to talk behind your backs. I mean, that was just commonplace. And I'll say, I agree with your assertion about societal's acceptance of lesbians and women. Um, and I think part of it is because that doesn't threaten the patriarchy as much. It doesn't right, threaten exactly. this Christianity aspect of exactly. the man is the ruler of the family. And like, you have to have this hierarchical system and whatever. Exactly. So yeah, yeah, for sure. No. And, and so the, it's, it, that's kind of what makes it so, so sad is that you're like, gosh, guys, if you could have just hung on, you know, for another 10 years, like by, you know, in the eighties and again, different parts of the, the country for sure. So this is like a thing. And I know that this is my own ignorance showing, but this movie really brought it into the sharp. When I've read, I've read this book several times, okay, and I couldn't remember what time period it was <laughs> because it's like it could be timeless. It could have been the 1800s. I don't know. They're freaking cowboys. This book could have taken place in the 1800s or the 1910s. Or you got cowboys and sheep, right? That's basically and there's right, no, right, there's no right. technology, so it's very timeless in a way. So then, as I'm watching the movie, and I'm like, oh, that's right. I'm looking at their clothes. I'm looking at the cars. And I'm thinking, okay, 1960s. And in my head, the 1960s are cities and urban and civil rights and the beginning of gay rights and 1970s are like bell bottoms and like Afrofuturism and like you know what I mean I have this very specific Afrofuturism really well, I read a lot of books I'm just saying okay. you know what I mean like uh, you, watch, you watch the um, Wakanda too much yeah that too but Why you know better? what I mean like um just a lot of stuff that that is is like my impression of these decades which is a very small picture of what those right. decades actually were and it's funny because yes like this there's still parts of the country that look like this book and this movie did in the 60s and the 70s. In fact, as right. I was watching it with Matthew, at the very beginning, he's like, oh, someone in my neighborhood had that truck. And then every time like the right. time shift would happen, he'd be like, someone in my neighborhood growing up had that truck and that yeah. truck and that truck. <laughs> so, you know, and there's still this cowboy culture and like there's still diners and cowboys and ranchers. So that's, so that's interesting <laughs> because as someone, how old is Matt? 45. <laughs> okay. So I'll be 60 this year. So for me, this is why the movie was so emotional for me on a gut level was because even though I grew up in Fresno and obviously not in some, what state is this set in? Wyoming. Wyoming. So even though I didn't grow up in some Wyoming state with plains all over the place and not a lot of cities. I grew up in Clovis, which at that point we still had dirt roads and this and that. It looked it appeared in my mind the same thing to what I was growing up. Um, 
even though I, so the buildings in the movie are very sparse and, and very unmarked and dirt roads and this and that, we still had dirt roads in Fresno and some of the stuff was very sparse. It wasn't quite like the movie, but it was close enough for me to relate to it. So I think that for older people, and I'm putting myself in that category, obviously, that time period rings really, really true. So what is, the movie, I will say, to my core, rings really, really true. I remember talking to the people that saw the movie when we went with the gay group in Fresno back in, when did it come out? 2005? Five. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we talked afterwards, and there were some people there that were younger that go, I don't really understand this. I don't really get this. And I'm like, well, because it relates to a certain time period, and I'm of that same age group, mm-hmm. it totally makes sense to me. So it's interesting how people of certain age groups will react differently to this movie based on their own experience. But to me, it felt completely, totally genuine. And I felt from the beginning and in the book as well, I felt from the beginning to the end, the heartache of these men who wanted a certain thing and they knew who they were and they wanted to be with each other. And that was what would make them happy. But Ennis especially knew in his core, we can't do this because we are in danger if we do this basically because his father took him to show him that man that was killed because he was gay. And this is in the book and in the movie. And they tortured him and killed him because he was gay because he was living with another man. So, and that both of them, he says, I, you know, my dad probably could have been one of the guys who did this to that man right, exactly. as well. Like and he I, knew that, you know, um, yeah. and I have to, I have to say, I don't think this is true of my family, but when I was younger, I might've said the same thing. I might've said, I wouldn't be surprised if my family did this, not because I think they were capable of it, but because in that day and age, everybody who was not LGBTQ was capable of it in our minds, because that was a time when we were not allowed to talk about it. We were not allowed to discuss it. We were not allowed to be with each other. We were not allowed to be anybody who we are. It's completely different than the time we are in now. So it's, it's interesting to me that this, movie was made like so the story was written in 1997 right about an earlier time period right obviously the 60s 70s getting up through the 80s okay and then they made the movie in 2005 so not that long after the book the the story came out i mean i know and we will probably talk about it there were some delays in in getting it made and hollywood being what it is but it's interesting to me this movie came out the same year as trans america did which is a Felicity Huffman. Another brilliant movie. Exactly. I saw that one a lot earlier. Um, but it, 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 and also, what was the other one that came? Well, there was History of Violence came out. That So uh, our culture was like kind of getting obsessed with gender roles and sex and sexuality and stuff in the early aughts. And this movie came in at a really important time and was a watershed moment, moment sort of movie for sure, right? It changed right. a lot of things. But it still was about a time that wasn't contemporary. It was contemporary enough that people going to the movie theater could either remember the 80s or remember the 60s, or it looked familiar enough that it wasn't like, oh, that's the 1700s. We don't act like that anymore. But at the same time, it did push back. It did, you know, the time wise. And it was in some ways, I think people could say, well, that sucked for those people that was in the 80s, though, the 60s, the 70s. Things are different now in 2005 without even like the context that things weren't 
<laughs> they were different, but they weren't that different. Let's let's not forget the 2005 is before 2008 with Prop 8. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Like marriage equality was not a thing yet. So right. watching it now in 2021. And, and what year was Matthew Shepard? Uh, he, you know, he was killed in 1998. Oh, it was way back. Okay. No, but, but that's interesting. He was killed a year after this book, the story came out. Yeah, yeah. In a in a midwestern kind of place in in Wyoming, where yeah, the story is, takes place exactly yeah exactly so yeah I I just how we deal with our history and how we view what was important in different historical places through the lenses of today is always kind of a fascinating idea you know like I was saying you know what we think about those decades and this movie did not gross as much money at the box office. It didn't win the Academy Award for Best Picture, but it won for it won other awards, but they gave the, the actual Oscar to Crash, which there was like a whole controversy about that. I think, I think Crash was a great movie, but I definitely think this should have won. I mean, by any stretch of the imagination, this should have won. It was revolutionary in its cinematography, its depiction of LGBT people, it's, it's writing, it's acting. This movie should have won. But, you know, it's, that's just an award. So, you know, what's sad, though, is that this movie just became the gay cowboy movie and it got distilled down into that. And I, like I referenced before, the parodies, so many parodies. Oh, it was, yeah, you know, yeah. broke back to the future and there was a Star Trek yeah. version and like everything. And the, there was the Star Trek version, really? Oh, yes. I should send it to you. It's Kirk and Spock. And they're like, you know, and they always, always with like the, the longing glances and then the music, brum, <laughs> brum, you know. Oh, my goodness. And like, I remember the SNL skits and I remember like the Oscar skits I and I, just yeah. all of that stuff. And it's problematic that it became, I'm going to say the butt of the joke. And I don't mean. <laughs> I hear how it the sounds. The butt of the joke. Really? Really, Enos? The butt of the joke? <laughs> Tell us the butt of the joke, Enos. No, I just, the fact that that it was seen as this humorous thing. And so there's a part of it that's like, okay, well, people are talking about it. And that's how people talk. They get, oh, they got to giggle, you know, like that's how we deal with right. puberty, right? You know, oh, we giggle and we right. make jokes. And then, you know, as we're internalizing it and whatever. But it right. is. It is. It bothers me that when you, so many things bother me, Chris. But one of the things that bothers me, I know, me, I know. Let it out, girl. Let it out. When you freaking Google <laughs> this movie, you'll like if you go to YouTube, all you'll find are the freaking parodies, and it is. Yeah, but okay. So let's talk about that. So I'm of the mind that comedy is unlimited. I think comedy should be able to make fun of anything, whether it's AIDS, whether it's women, whether it's ethnicity. I. That's me. That's just me. I think comedy should have no limits. Everything should be death, whatever. Everything should be made fun of. That's how we get through life by comedy. So I remember all these Brokeback Mountain comedy bits and I get what you're saying. I completely agree that the seriousness of this movie was kind of counteracted by the teenage childishness of all these parodies, which, you know, gay people have always been subjected to my whole life. I've been subject subjected to, you know, being made fun of just because I'm gay, then it's butt jokes. It's like, you just made like, <laughs> like this, like that. I, I think that's perfectly okay. I think it's okay to make fun of anything, but I agree with you that it, it kind of takes something from this film. And I think a reason when the award was not that same exact reason, but something to that degree, which is, 
it's not quite as serious because it's two gay guys in the woods humping in a tent. Whereas the, the film in the book is so immensely deeper than that. Yeah. And touches on so many more issues, but that's where people go and people are people. Well, and I just think it's also like Heath Ledger before he died was real, um, very strict about it. He didn't want to hear any jokes or the parodies. He found them very problematic and offensive and he took it very right. seriously. And he, he went on record multiple times saying like, this was a love story. It's about love. It's not a gay cowboy it movie. Is. And I, I freaking love that about Heath Ledger <laughs> that he, yeah. he was there for that. Too bad we lost him. I, it's tragic. And I think Jake Gyllenhaal also, he is, is, is a pretty good ally in a lot of ways. And it's interesting. I alluded to it before, but um, roles were offered to uh, Matt Damon and Brad Pitt and they turned them down and (laughs) right. Well, but see, then at one point they were saying, well, we can't make this movie unless we have famous people in it uh, because it won't get seen by anybody if it doesn't have somebody famous and that's what that's what is really really stands behind this film is that jake gyllenhaal was not a big star at that point heath ledger was nobody and this film was up for academy awards so i think there's a fine line and and it takes decades for change to happen so there's a fine line between people nominating an lgbtq film and it winning now let's look at moonlight which won years later and is a lgbt a brilliant LGBTQ film. So Brokeback Mountain has its place in setting the stage for these future films. It's sad that it didn't win. And it's, you know, kind of uh, a travesty that it didn't win. But as in history, with all of movements, some things set the stage for others to move forward. So that's a that's a plus. Right. And progress is small steps forward. Right. right? It, then that's it is it's not at all diminish the importance of it and the importance of okay, controversial, the importance of straight actors being willing to be gay characters, not, not, not pulling back, you know, these guys were, these were, there's no, no homo here. These are guys who fully committed and then treated it respectfully and would go to bat and be like, no, man, it's a freaking love story. That's what it is. I played a part of a person who was in love. It's not a gay cowboy movie. And I, I love that. Now, I know that there's this thing right now about how only gay people should play gay people and only, okay. And how do you feel about that? Well, we've talked about this before and I think we're on the same page where an actor is an actor, in my opinion, an actor is an actor. And if you can play the role, play the role. And the audition should be open to anybody who could potentially play the role. But when it comes down to it, the best person might not be the thing. And that's called acting. That's my stance. Maybe not popular, but that's. I, I completely agree with you. I, I think will. It, I'll make an exception for ethnicity. <laughs> I really don't like it when white people play like Asian people. Like that. Well, yeah, I think that's, that's a, a whole other thing. Yeah, so, other, and I think it's ironic that we're just getting caught up to that. I, yeah, yeah. But for I, sure, I, right? I, totally, I totally agree with you. I, I will say right now. Anybody who thinks a straight actor can't play gay is bullshit. Shut the fuck up. That's not the truth. An actor is an actor, and an actor can play a truck driver or a gay guy or a waitress. I don't care. An actor is an actor. So I completely disagree with anybody, and I say this on social media all the time. If you're an LGBTQ person who's saying he can't play, he or she can't play a gay person because they're straight, you're wrong. You're an idiot. That's stupid, and I'll be very honest about it. 
Now, that being said, I do agree with you that, of course, if a, if a character is of a certain ethnicity, they should be portrayed by an actor of, a, of that ethnicity. Right. That being said, we're now changing ethnicities and superhero movies like Captain America is becoming black and other, which is, I think is totally great. I have right. no problem with that because those are fictional characters. But if you're playing a, a real person in history and you're of a certain color, I, I don't even know if this happens anymore. No, but I think um, it's more like the, you know, like the, the role is like the character in a movie is um, a Hawaiian woman. Let's just pick an example up that's at the top of right. my head. And she's cast by Emma Stone, who's like as white as you can yeah, white, whitey McWhitey pants. Like that's because it was important to that character that they had the specific cultural heritage, right? So that's like right. a different thing than if it's if it's not indicated. For example, um, my most recent episode of this podcast was Woman in the Window. And in the book, she never mentions the main character's race or her husband's race. And when they cast for the movie, they made her a white lady and her her husband a black man and it's it's not relevant but it was nice to see because like oh hey look it was never mentioned in the, in the never story. mentioned in the story so it didn't matter so they just found the best person for that particular right. role and it's great perfect that is that is a-okay right and and freaking sam which is funny because sam the guy who plays captain america sam the falcon or whatever he's right that's the the black dad in the movie that I just referenced. So full oh, okay. circle podcasting right here. But right. <laughs> but yes. Anthony Mackie is who you're talking about, right? And, and yeah. And so like I don't actually have a stance when it comes to trans actors. I know that's like a hot thing that maybe we can I do. You want me to tell my stance? <laughs> I probably won't keep it in because it's not relevant to this, but sure, Chris, tell me how you feel. I just think if you want to play a trans character and you're a cis character, a cis person, that's totally fine. I don't, this is the thing. I think that people in the LGBT community are thinking that it's some kind of devious plot that directors and producers are hiring cis straight or cis actors to play trans characters. That's not the case. I think that they're just, and I, and I can't speak to how, how they do the auditions. So whether they have enough people audition, but I would, there's two things that are involved with movies. One is we need a bankable star. Mm -hmm. We need people that will come to see the movie. And I think that's legitimate. If you're going to sell a big budget movie and you have to have people come to the theater, it makes sense that you would say, we want somebody with a name. On the other hand, I think, are they not letting trans actors uh, audition? I kind of highly doubt that. I think maybe they're just finding the best person for the role, but with an eye toward budget, with an eye toward bankability. And that's just, the, the movie business is business, and we can't pretend that it's not a business. For sure. I'm off my rant. You can go ahead. <laughs> Speaking of actors, another change, I mean, we've talked about Heath Ledger and his physicality, but I think another thing that's kind of important is that the Ennis in in the book is a fairly ordinary scruffy, It's he's called a little cave chested. Right, right. And, but the Ennis of the film is like totally the embodiment of American masculinity, right? He's like super stoic, he's handsome, he's dangerous, he's got this quick temper, right? All of these things. And I just, I think that he is, it's, it's cool that, okay, this is going to go into stereotyping, but Jack looks like a dandy and Ennis does not. Looks like a, what, a dandy, like a gay boy? Yes. Okay. 
I mean, he's got his little blue shirt. The freaking first thing we see him do is shave and cruise Ennis, right? Like, the I mean, first thing I saw him do, and it's the second thing, a third thing. Yeah, I saw all that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's not even subtle, right? And he was right, like, right, right, rodeo cowboy and like all of that stuff. And so the fact that we're going to undermine the actual this this i this idea this mythic American cowboy like the sot like but in the book they call Jack Bucktooth and he's obviously yeah. not Bucktooth yeah exactly um, but I think I took Ennis a different way um, I I remember the cave chested thing I kind of saw Heath Ledger in that way the way he carried his body he did kind of push his chest back and push his stomach out and even though he's obviously fit he kind of played the part as, you know, a frumpy redneck mm. guy, which is not uh, frumpy. You know. Huh? Not frumpy. Oh, someone's in love. Someone's <laughs> in love with Heath Ledger. All right. <laughs> Jack and I both tried very hard not to watch him nakedly wash himself. That's, that's what happened. Yeah. I like that scene where, um, where Ennis is um, taking, he takes off his pants and he's washing himself. And there's, it, it's a fascinating scene. And, and I think Ang Lee is brilliant in this movie, just brilliant in the way he captures things because some of it is so subtle. So you, you see this, you see Heath Ledger in the background who takes his jeans off. He's completely naked. I think he's got boots on. And no, he's no, watching. He's him. naked. His feet are bare, but his hat is on. Because oh, his hat is on. Okay. That's proper American cowboy nudity. That's, <laughs> that's proper Kalia fantasy right there. So he's in the background. And he's washing himself specifically like his balls and his ass in this scene. And you watch and the camera is focused on Jake Gyllenhaal's face, which I think I think he's over a campfire or something. He's doing something, but he's just looking forward and it goes and it goes and it goes. And then in an instant, Jake Gyllenhaal, his eyes just look up just casually, not toward Heath Ledger, but up in the direction. If he had turned, he would see Heath Ledger. That was another brilliant move by Ang Lee because this is what gay guys did in that time period. They couldn't admit, they couldn't directly look at another guy. But if you tell me there's a naked guy behind me, I might just look up and think, well, maybe I could see something out of the corner of my eye. I thought that kind of stuff in that movie was brilliant. Yeah, well, and just the second that, and it starts to disrobe, you can see Jake Gyllenhaal, he clenches his mouth, like his right. jaw gets real tight. Like he's like, I mean, it's very subtle, but yeah. Jack was Jack was there for it. The other really subtle stuff in this film was Alma, when she discovers oh. uh, Jack and Ennis kissing in the, in the at the bottom of the stairwell and everything that happens after that. The subtlety, like when she's sitting there drinking coffee, waiting for him to come in or when she's in the kitchen and the climactic scene where she confronts Ennis and she, you can just feel her even at the dinner table before that, just kind of feel her seething and like, I want to confront him. I want to confront him. The subtleties in this movie are just amazing. So there's a couple things. One is I love the fact that we actually got to see her and, and like in the story, she was just hardly not there. You know, right. she, her, her lines were there, but we really didn't get to see. And like the fit, her physicality, like the stuff going on on her face, it was just amazing actress acting. Yeah. But also a lot of times when you have star crossed lovers or people who are like want to be together, but they're some, they're married or they're, they're coupled up and they're going to be cheating. Right. So cheating stories, they either 
they go out of their way to show you that the people who are being cheated on are awful. So like they kind of deserved it, you know? So like as an audience, we can sympathize and whatever, or like, you know, so that's, that's very common, right? You know, or they're like maybe oblivious or like, you know, it doesn't, we don't get to see the tragedy of their situation because the focus is so much on the true love and the blah, 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 blah. But in this, we saw the destruction of, of this marriage of Alma and Ennis's marriage. And we saw how painful it was for her. And it, 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 it let us focus on that without detracting from, we were still rooting for Jack and Ennis, but we were right. so sympathetic to Alma. And I just, I think that that's like a really fine, a, a very careful line to walk. And I just really appreciated that this movie did that and the book too. Yeah, I think that's so perceptive. In fact, the fact that we could see that Alma was suffering and yet she didn't know how to deal with it, but it never made us feel like Ennis was the bad guy, even though she at times said Ennis was the bad guy. And if, if you're looking at this outside of an acceptance of LGBTQ people, you might say, well, Ennis was the bad guy. He should never have fooled around on her because technically he was fooling around on her, whether he's straight, gay, whatever. So that part of it is, you know, invalidating or disrespecting the marriage. But when you look at it from the LGBTQ side, which is he's following his nature and he's only trying to survive emotionally and physically and all this stuff, just like Jack said in the movie many times, you know, you don't know what it is to go without it for this, you know, for so long that I have to go to Mexico and get hooked up with a guy because Jack was obviously a more sexual being than Ennis was. That's the thing. It Ennis was a tragic character because he couldn't connect to people. He wasn't a right. tragic character because he was gay. And I, I love that distinction That's true. because he couldn't connect. He didn't have a good family connection, right? His parents were dead and he could tell he wasn't close to them before they died. Like he was afraid of his father, his siblings, there was no closeness there. So now he's got Elma. And I think he genuinely loved her. You could see that in like, especially the sledding scenes and stuff. Right. Like he right. cared for her. He loved his daughters at right. the point when Jack showed up and was like, hey man, you're, you're divorced now. Let's go away together. Like all these things. And Ennis picked his daughters. Like he picked his family. He was like, right. I can't quit this job because I need to make money for my family. He wouldn't let his daughter come and live with him because he knew that wasn't good for her. At the very end, he's willing to be there with it. So he, he loved, and like it, it, when they showed him interacting with his children he was always picking them up or right. like working you know caring for them so he but he couldn't connect right he couldn't fully connect to them and he couldn't connect to Alma he couldn't commit and connect to Jack as much as Jack wanted him to and then he had that little that adorable little waitress what is it Gina Cataloni or Cattle I'm so bad with names but anyway she was on ER and also a bunch of other things and she's adorable and I love her so much and he couldn't connect to her either you know, she was like, I'm here for you. I, and I like the big rugged non-talker cowboy, but he couldn't quite do that either. And yeah, I felt with her, he was, he was specifically, this is how I felt as a gay man. He was specifically not connecting, but feeling like he had to because he had to do something normal. Mm -hmm. She pursued him pretty yeah. epically. Um, and just a little tiny caveat here, but when you've been dancing in sandals and then you take your shoes off and you put your stinky, sweaty feet on a man's lap and ask for a foot rub, <laughs> uh, that girl, you have no chill is, is all I can yeah, say. Yeah, like yeah. that was, right. I was right. grossed out. 
anyways, la la la. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> he, even as you saw, like he liked the the living outside of town. He, he didn't want to live in town. He wanted to live out here. And at the very end, he's in his little trailer far away, you know, from the town and trying to connect to his daughter, but trying not. I mean, he's so... So That's sad. very good. I mean, I, I hadn't thought about the trailer way outside of town, but I totally agree with you that there's two tragedies to Anna's. One is he can't connect because of his family history, and then he can't connect because of, of being gay. So he's got a double whammy against him. So he can't connect to, to regular people, if, so to speak, if you want to put that in quotes, because of his family and his abandonment issues. And he can't connect to gay people because that just reinforces the abandonment and the isolation. That's that, yeah, that's really good. Well, if, if you want to know something else, that's kind of fun and mind blowing. I love this. So if you think about, okay, first of all, the symbolism of the closet is, is not lost yeah. on me, right? Yeah. The shirts being in the exactly. closet and the closet has a door that you can close or leave open. He was obviously sometimes leaving it open so that he could see his little shrine to Jack, but then he could close it up because of course, Ennis is going to close off parts of himself, right? But right. his little trailer, right? Out there with, with its picture, its little picture of Brokeback Mountain, which is the symbol of the, the old cowboy way. The, the, the freedom of these men going out fishing and hunting and, and being dirty and smelly and drinking their whiskey and of course having their sex, but mainly like no nagging wives, no children who need their, you know, no judgment. no judgment, none of that stuff. Very pure. And at the end, he's in this tiny little trailer and out of his window are freaking cornfields or soybean fields. I don't know plants, but I can tell that that is a field <laughs> that has been like laden intentionally. That is not wild. That is not the mountain. That is not nature. That is cultivation out there. I'll and, have to look at that again. I didn't and, notice and that. And it's like this encroaching thing that he, he like, I think, and it should have been born. Uh, 50 years, you know, earlier or 50 years later. Right. You know, but like he was trapped in this, in this awful time and he couldn't have that freedom to go and be who he wanted. And now he's stuck in this little trailer looking at freaking land that's been controlled. I just, Oh my God. Like I'm getting chills. I, wow. That's brilliant. Kaylee. Okay. I'll, I'll look, I'll have to look at it again. I have to cry some more. Thank you very yes. much. Well, and, and, and to cope and to, just to kind of put it with, with Jack too, like his thing, he got this family situation resolved, right? He's got the wife, he's got the kid and his father-in-law hates him. We've got that whole like frustration, but his job is now sales, right? Which is like, if you could get more opposite of cowboys, I feel like it would be sales. I <laughs> right? because one is like rugged and individualist and like you're going out and you're with nature and the other is like commercial and and money and like shining people on, right? And convincing them. It's like all about the talking and the little dance and like the ebb and the flow and you're practically prostituting yourself to get people to buy your shit. Blah da da da, da. like sales sucks. I I maybe it's like the caricature of a cowboy because yes a cowboy is a character in a way, even though it was a real thing. But to us, these days, a cowboy is a character. And I think that juxtaposition, when he became the best salesperson of his father-in-law's company with mm -hmm. the tractors, was partly because of his character as a cowboy. And he kind of bastardized that, which a lot of people did. It's like car salesmen in the 60s and the early 70s. Those guys were kind of cowboyish people, too. Not only was he doing that, but what was he selling? Farm equipment. 
farm, farm equipment, yeah. which is farmers, cowboys versus farmers, right? Again, with this right, wildness right. versus this cultivation. And the only thing we really see Jack with his family, we see his little thing with his father-in-law. We kind of see a little bit of stuff with his wife, but they have a very comfortable relationship. He's asking about his parka and she's giving him shit and he's giving it right back. And then the only other little bit we get is him saying, talk to the teacher of their kid. And she's like, oh, I don't want to. And he's like, they're tired of hearing from me. I complain too much, which basically means he's an active parent to his child, right. protecting which his- is surprising. Right. But like considering how his father treated him and then like how his father-in-law was, like I, he was trying to be this good influence in his boy's life. And like, we, the only thing we really saw his kid was when he was trying to be a good father to him or holding him in his lap on the, in the tractor and stuff. So like Jack has his own tragedy stuff, but it's just, this was more about Ennis. The story was, a, was Ennis's story with a little bit of Jack. Right, but let me ask you this. So this is what confuses me a little bit about the film. Uh, Lorene's relationship with Jack do you think, because the end scene where, where Ennis calls about after he finds out that Jack is deceased and that whole tragic little scene, do you have any feeling as to whether Lorene knew about Jack? Because there's no indication when he's looking for his parka or his coat or whatever that scene is where he's looking for his coat to go fishing with Ennis. She knows he's done this a million times and she's kind of kind of nonchalant about it, whereas Alma, well, obviously knows exactly what's going on because she's seen them kiss. Do you have any feeling that that Lorene in that movie, and she's not very much in the book or in the story, so it's hard to tell. Do you have any feeling that she might have had an indication of what was going on? I think she found it out in that conversation with Ennis. And I think that we when see he that- called after he called after Jack was dead. I think that we see that on her face. And which is yeah. all actor and not the words on the screen because it's yeah. literally the same words that were in the book but you can see the uh, on her face like as she's like going she's like thinking things through i feel like right. they had i called it a corporate marriage in my narr in my recap but I think mean, they had a, a marriage of convenience. I think he genuinely liked her. And I'm pretty sure that Jack was a sexual creature who I, I feel like even before Alma saw Ennis kissing Jack, she thought there was something off about him because of the one sex scene that we get from them. And it's alluded to in the book. He did the thing that she didn't like in bed. He flipped her over. and So like there was already a little bit, but I, I have a feeling that like, and she, but Laureen and Jack, she pursued him just as much as he pursued her. They're having right. sex in the back of a car. It was like very cliche and quintessential and like all this stuff. And they've got a kid. I think that they had a decent enough marriage actually. And I think that she had no idea at all, at all until then. And then I think it was, a, I think it was, that was the moment when she learned. Yeah. on the phone call. I, I, I can agree with that. I can, I, it's just always a question when someone is married to somebody who is of a different sexual orientation for a lot of years, do you know at some point you just accept it or do you not know uh, because you're- Again, the timing, like there's so much a denial right? Like, you know, right, like right. It, she might not have even like occurred to her because think of it at that point, that's 1983, right? So she's been right. married to him for 20 years or however long, I guess, think they got married actually in a, a little bit later than that. But like, they've been married for a really long time. She would probably have had no idea. He travels for work already. Like she might've assumed he was sleeping with other women, but cause that's True. kind of a thing that like a lot of people just turn a blind eye and who cares and blah, blah, right. blah, you know, but like, 
if it wasn't in front of her face, if it wasn't literally two men kissing on her doorstep, like poor Alma, then she probably just wouldn't have even occurred to her, especially considering that the gay culture in the 70s and the early 80s was not Texan uh, tractor sales guys. Do you know what I mean? What was being thrown on media and stuff was, that was not it. He's not in San Francisco wearing chaps. So how can he possibly be gay? I mean, I I thought today when I looked at, I hadn't noticed before when I read the book that it ended in close to 1983, which is right after the start of AIDS, which they didn't bring into the book, which makes sense because, you know, they were in Wyoming and AIDS didn't really take off until like 1985. But I remember that time period and I knew about AIDS in 1983. So it's interesting how different parts of the country may have different perceptions on society and LGBTQ people and disease based on where you live. Well, gay people live in California, Chris. They don't live in Wyoming, don't you know? That's true. That's true. Yeah. I've never even been to Wyoming, but I want to go. Isn't that where Devil's Tower is? I don't. That sounds like a nature thing. (laughs) That's Close Encounters. The Devil's Tower and Close Encounters. I have some trivia. And some trivia. Oh, I love Tess. <laughs> okay, so in 1997, when this movie came out, that was the same year that Ellen came out. The what, Ellen? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. The movie In and Out came out oh, in 1997. Horrible movie. Horrible, horrible movie. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Horrible movie, but I saw it in a the theater and I regret it. So I just leave <laughs> I saw it in the theater too with my mom. I'm pretty sure. A straight friend. Yeah, you saw it with your mom. I, I saw it with straight friends. That's that's what you did. You were the gay that accompanied people to see Kevin Klein in and out. I mean, <laughs> and I, I also accompanied people to see a straight friend to see um, Julie Newmar. What was that movie? Oh, Two Wong Fu Things for Everything Love. Two Wong Fu Things. Yeah. Yes, yes. And she talked through the whole movie. I was so embarrassed. But you know, you take a straight person to a gay movie. I didn't see that one until later on in the video. But uh, I saw Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, actually at a sleepover. And it was it was life changing. You had a sleepover at the theater. No, for Priscilla not Queen. at the desert, not at the <laughs> well, theater. That's a more interesting story. It would be. It. Yes. No. OK, so the author, Annie, I, I, I'm so bad with names. What is I, now? I can't find it. She's got a weird name. It's it's Prue. Prue. I think it's Prue. Yeah. OK, so okay. Annie Prue, she has gone on record saying, A, she loved the movie, which is cool because she should everybody should love this movie but b she sort of wishes she'd never written the story because she keeps getting letters from people telling her that she should have written a happy ending oh my god and then and then people she says in this article they always start these men start this letter off with i'm not gay but here's but. <laughs> here's how the book Ironic they use the word but i'm just saying here's how it should have ended and then they send her different endings <laughs> <laughs> and she's one of those authors who's like really anti-fan fiction so i thought right. that that was interesting so yeah so does she do mostly short stories or does she yeah. have novels out yeah too? short stories mostly we do have to acknowledge the whole barrier gaze trope it's a thing where like gay characters in literature, especially in film and uh, in, in books, uh, die. They get punished for being gay because it's definitely a thing. It's definitely a trope for a reason. And right. it is troublesome and sad. So it's absolutely true that, that movies in the 60s, 70s, into the early 80s, gay people died all the time, either by suicide or by murder, or they were perverts or... They were serial killers or, you know, a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Absolutely the truth. I don't think that applies to this 
story, this book, this short story or this movie, because it's set in that time. And in that time, the absolute fucking truth was that LGBTQ people were they had violence put against them. They were uh, rejected by their families. You know, one of the lines I thought in this movie, and I don't know if it's in the story or not, which was really interesting, which was when the guys were in the bar first talking, I think it was when they were in the bar first talking about each other after they got the job to go to Brokeback Mountain. Uh, Ennis is telling the story about, he, he he's not with his family anymore. I think this is before he said that they were killed and Jack said, did they, did they kick you out? Did they or did they reject off? Did they, what was it? Did they run you off? Did they run you off? Exactly. That's that's the right wording, um, which was completely, totally normal at that time. It still happens to this day. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a little perspective needed when people, and I hate to use this word woke because I hate it, but LGBTQ people want to be woke right now and criticize anything that represents a challenge to who they are now. But this is not about who you are now. This is about who we were then. And I can tell you, as this old guy doing this podcast, that's exactly what it was like then. I couldn't talk about, I didn't come out till I was 20. I was born in 61, didn't come out till I was 82. And even then it was dangerous because AIDS was happening. You could not talk about it. There were no gay people on TV. There were no gay people in the media. There were no gay people anywhere. So, and gay people were getting beat up and killed and blah, 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 blah. So while that seems like a kind of a negative stereotype to put towards the LGBT community that all these people in the movies were being killed and suicide, it was a a reality. I really liked the addition of the Jack asking if his parents had run him off because A, he's projecting because his parents ran him off. And I feel like that's like a very careful way of feeling out whether or not, you know, which is what you do. It's like when you change pronouns and you're telling your history to see if people pick up on it so you don't have to actually come out to come out right you know we have these little ways of testing people or we're like oh what are you doing the first week of june (laughs) you know or (laughs) how do you are you wearing vibrant colors how do you feel about (laughs) rainbows are you how do you feel about dorothy are you a friend (laughs) you know um Not subtle, but yes. So I, I do. I, I like that. But it, it definitely made Jack much more into this. Not predatory, but. Yeah, there was a lot of that with little subtle innuendos where Jack and Ennis would say things back and forth to kind of test the other one. I felt completely connected to that because that's what, you know, like when, when Jack is in the bar and he runs up against the, the guy that was the clown in the rodeo and he mm-hmm. wants to buy him a drink. And there's this short, brief instance where he says, let me buy him a drink. And then the clown the guy who's not in clown makeup looks at him and Jack looks at him and his eyes move up and down just very subtly. That's what used to happen. That's how you would test people out to see if they were interested. And of course the guy rejects him and then goes and tells his friends that, you know, this guy's might be a queer. Um, But that's the exact thing that used to happen. And I don't know how Ang Lee knows all this, but those little subtleties throughout the whole movie were exactly what used to happen in that day and age. Right. And I, I think that, this, this is why I think that we have to have death of the author sometimes, because you could very easily say, this was written by a woman. She can't possibly know what it's like to be a gay man in the 60s. Okay, she can't possibly know what it's like to be a gay man in the 60s. But my God, look what the finished product. It's so authentic. Right. Again, death of the author. Leave the author out of it. Judge the work just on, on what the exactly. work is for sure. Totally agree. A lot of the 
early relationship building of Jack and Ennis is not in the story as much as it is is in the movie. They definitely fleshed it out more. And I think that part of that is because they had to pad the movie out. But part of it is because they really wanted to lay in this groundwork and this foundation because it did seem to happen a little fast in the short story, partly because the short story is short um partly because i think the so one of the points of the short story is all the stuff that's not said and and that that works as a narrative device for a short story but you can't have a movie about things not said or things not shown because then you would not have a movie so i love the fact that they built in they had this whole joke about the harmonica they had like the little subtle things about the beans where jack's like i don't like beans and enos is like i like beans and then he enos asked for for soup not beans and it's not for him it's for jack he wants to give soup to jack because he already likes jack and he's watching jack on the horse and saying that horse is a low startle point and jack's like this filly can't throw me and you know he's posturing it up and like Ennis is like wor- looks worried and like they're looking at each other from far away and so so it was just it was built in excellently done. do you think that um this is always a question for me especially on this movie and other movies that are close to this do you think that cis heterosexual people pick up on these little clues in this movie like let, let's say i watched uh, notting hill is one of my favorite movies okay which is a very straight love story between julia roberts and um the flappy guy yeah i love that movie and i love it because of the little subtleties that go in between them and i don't have to be straight to understand that um, so the question is, is it because as LGBTQ people, we grow up in a straight society and we already know those routines? And the reason that cis straight people may not pick up on the kind of clue and just say, oh, it's just some fucking gay movie and not pick up on those subtle emotional clues in a gay's love story because they've never had to live that. I don't know. Could be. I mean, you, you know your own reality, right? As a, right. As a cis queer person, I can't imagine i don't i don't get straight people <laughs> yeah, well, i don't I, I don't quite understand like like my brain yeah. doesn't doesn't fully but comprehend. they would say the same thing they about would us. say the same thing so like i and i feel like you're offended by my nodding hill reference and that kind no, of me. <laughs> no no i'm just I, I my look was like i was trying to remember and, and what's his name it's like heath or hal or what is his name oh my god Hugh? this is bugging Hugh? me is it a hugh name I want to say Hugh Jackman. And no, I know it's that's not, not Hugh it. Jackman. Okay, okay, it okay. He was Daniel Cleaver. Hugh Grant. Hugh think, Grant. Yes, that's Hugh who it is. Grant. Hugh Grant. Okay. See, I was getting there. I got the Hugh part. Yeah. So I was trying to remember his freaking name. I I think I saw that movie, but I honestly, it's a. You know I, what? It's a silly rom com. Yeah. But it's deep in its emotional impact of these two characters. Okay, I didn't mean to say it was deep. I fucked up. Forget I ever brought up Notting Hill in a discussion. I broke back now. <laughs> That's okay. I'm ashamed of myself. My very favorite romantic comedy ever also has Hugh Grant in it, but it's what? music and lyrics. I've never even seen that. Drew Barrymore. Ugh. I thought you were going to say Four Weddings and a Funeral. I've never seen no. music. And- oh, listen to you judgmental okay so i've never yeah. seen music and lyrics what's that about it's cute it's about hugh grant was uh 80s queen all right well, i'm music, judging you right now and i don't want to talk about it's it. freaking adorable <laughs> okay working titles for the story the original story included the pleasures of whiskey mountain oh god oh my god <laughs> bulldust mountain bulldust mountain uh-huh 
Drinkard Mountain. Oh my God, these are horrible. And my personal favorite, Swill Swallow Mountain. Oh, I rented that movie in 1985 and it was nothing like this one, nothing. It was not bad though. You got to fast forward through a lot of it, but it wasn't bad. (laughs) Wow, those are horrible. Chris, was this book worth your time? Was this movie worth your time? Absolutely. A million times over. Spoilers. We, we love them both. But this book is so short and you can read it for free on the internet on your lunch break. So I there's... paid $7.99 for this book. <laughs> the book in quotes. Yeah, it's, it's little. It's teeny what tiny. What I would say is read the story before you watch the movie. Don't do the opposite. Yeah. 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 If sure. you're going to do both. Otherwise, just watch the movie. The movie's Otherwise, brilliant. But the book is so short that you might as well, and you can read it for free on your lunch. Right, like exactly. Said. So, like, there's no reason to not read this. You should read it, and then you should watch this movie because this movie is freaking amazing. And it is, it is absolutely amazing. I'm horrified that I didn't ever watch it before, like, full and all the way through and giving it all my time and energy. Like, I feel they're going to come take away my queer card, Chris. Yeah, I was, so I was up last night at 2.30, and I'm like, what am I going to do? Well, let's watch Brokeback, man. I watched the whole fucking thing um, <laughs> from 2.30 to 4.30. And I watch it when, I, when I'm, when uh, i you know, in the living room trying not to wake up James. I don't watch with sound. I watch with subtitles. So it's interesting to watch a movie with subtitles because sometimes you get stuff that you may have missed in just listening to a movie. But I, I just couldn't watch this movie enough. I just think it's one of the greatest movies of all time. Well, and I will say this movie has a very long beginning where there's no dialogue. Right, <laughs> it was, right. I think it's like six minutes in or something ridiculous yeah. like that before anybody talks. So, it, yeah. I mean, it, but it's it, beautiful. It's a slow burn. And I appreciate that. It's not, yeah. you know, um, and I mean, I, like I said, I watched it with my cis uh, straight husband who really liked it liked it enough that he is he wearing a cowboy hat today or is he <laughs> no he, just he has an indiana jones hat that's, that's there you go that's that his vibe, baby but no i mean he loved it enough that he he did internet research and like wanted to talk about it over dinner tonight oh, i was cool. like stop stop you're stealing all my <laughs> thoughts i have to save them for the podcast so yeah no i this it's so worth it it's it's worth it on all the levels and um Everybody should watch this freaking movie. Yeah, so, no, I, agree. I think I think the story is worth it too. Do both. And it was perfect to to do for Pride. So yeah, Pride twenty twenty one, which is a little weird. It's not the normal kind of Pride again this year because of COVID. But you know, one more year and we should be hopefully back to normal. That would whatever be normal is at this point. Pretty awesome. So, uh, as always, listeners, if you want to get involved in the LGBT community in your area, hey, you should totally do that. There are a bunch of ways that you can find your local LGBT community center, your local LGBT groups, and I will have a lot of links on our blog post for this episode. And Chris, do you have anything you want to talk about or promote, or how can the people get in touch with you? So I'll just promote quistry.org again, which is our site for um, documenting long-term the uh, stories of LGBTQ plus people in the Central Valley, quistry.org. And uh, I want, I would like to kind of promote this, this series I saw on FX, Channel FX, which is called Pride. My husband and I were in Monterey and Carmel and Pacific Grove a couple weeks ago. 
And when we were in for the evening, I turned the TV on and I, I don't generally watch uh, LGBTQ stuff on TV because I've seen so much of it and it seems to be the same story over and over and over again. I could not take my eyes off of this series. It goes from the 60s up until now and it tells stories that I, as an activist and a writer and a historian in this, in this movement, have never, ever heard before and it's acted out by actors and then they show the actual stuff on the side so i highly recommend you watch pride it's on hulu and fx cool and we can put some links to both quistery and to pride in the show notes so very cool well thank you so much for coming and talking to me and uh yeah so thank you so much and yeah this will come out on the 7th of june okay huzzah all right girl i gotta go make cookies is that code for something? <laughs> I know you're a big sci-fi nerd, so I'm going to have you back to talk about sci-fi. Yes, <laughs> let's do that. Look at all this shit behind me on the wall. See how much sci-fi shit? I know we have to find the right the right sci-fi. That have you done, have you read Total Recall? Is that a book? Yeah. I've seen the movie a thousand times, but I didn't know it was a book. That's not a Philip K. Dick thing, is it? Uh, no, that's Minority Report. I'm doing oh, that one. Minority. That's Tom Cruise. I'm not interested. I'm doing Minority Report with Sean. That's actually the second June episode. But no, it is um, Piers Anthony, another classic sci-fi. Oh, I'd love to do Total Recall if you're interested. Let's do Total Recall, baby. I'd love to do it. I'd love because the movie's the movie is like one of those guilty pleasures where it's just stupid shit, but I watch it all the time. So yeah, I'd love to do that. Is this the one where there's the person with three boobs? Yes. I love it, but it's total cheese ball, but I love it. Well, Hey, you know, Die Hard was a cheese ball movie, but it was a really excellent book. So That's true. That's true. Maybe this one will be too. Okay, okay cool. 